for filling in for me for the past couple of weeks. Uh, enjoyed listening to his sermons and uh, am very grateful for uh, his ministry uh, with us. Uh, it is good to be back and glad to be back into our study of the Gospel of Mark uh, this morning. And Mark opened his Gospel with John the Baptist calling the Jewish nation to repentance. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, Jesus came preaching the need for repentance. And now as we continue our study in the sixth chapter of Mark, the disciples are sent out to be heralds of repentance. Why all this emphasis on repentance? John the Baptist, Jesus, 12 disciples, Surely they could have come up with a more positive message. No one likes to be told to repent. However, repentance is essential to forgiveness. So what may appear to be a very negative message is indeed a most positive message. We don't march around with placards that just say, repent. We hold out the forgiveness available through Christ, but forgiveness that is contingent upon repentance. Everyone needs to be forgiven. And so the message of repentance is one that must be heard. But what exactly is repentance? You know, some would suggest it's sorrow for sin, for being sorry for doing something wrong. I had a, a friend at Fit Club uh, just Friday. He always asked me what I'm going to be preaching about. And I said, I'm preaching on repentance. He said, oh. He said, yeah, well, that, that means I'm sorry. I said, no, it means a lot more than that. He said, oh, no. <laughs> you know, we're comfortable thinking repentance just means I'm sorry. That's not the end of it. It's the first step toward repentance. Sorrow for one's action is very important, but if that stops there, it stops short. Just being sorry is not enough. That is not repentance. Then there are others who might go to the other extreme and suggest that you haven't repented until you've made amends for all the sins in your life, until you've straightened out everything. That's going too far. Because you may never be able to straighten everything out. So what is it? What is repentance? Well, the word actually means to look back on something and change your mind about it. As it's used in the New Testament, the word always indicates a change for the better. It's turning from the wrong to the right. Turning from sin toward God. In Acts 3.18, or 3.19, is my favorite verse on repentance. It says, repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is returning, returning to God. You know, when we sin, we make a decision to turn our back on God and to walk away from him. Now some walk further away from God than others, 
but we all do it. And when we do it, we need to acknowledge the fact that we are walking away from God and then make a decision to change the direction, the direction that we're traveling. That is repentance. It's a decision to turn around and change the direction of our life back toward God. And since all have sinned, all need to repent. But not all do repent. And in our study for today, we'll see some who do and some who don't. We begin with a picture of the message of repentance being proclaimed and accepted. We're in Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 7. And he, Jesus, summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs. And he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. You may recall that Jesus was having a difficult time getting the message proclaimed. The crowds were demanding that he spend the bulk of his time healing and ministering to physical needs. So he was limited in the amount of time he had to preach and teach. But he had a message that needed to be delivered. It was time to enlist others in getting the message out. So he summoned the 12 and sent them out. Now, they had been with him for about a year. And while they still had faulty ideas about the kingdom of God and the mission of Jesus, they did know that he was calling men to repentance. It was time for the band of disciples to become apostles to be sent out. You know, the verb to send is the word from which we get the noun apostle, which means one sent out. The 12 were sent out to spread the message of repentance into areas Jesus would be unable to cover by himself. Now, it was a short-term assignment, kind of a study or a student teaching uh, experience that would last for a few weeks or, or months at the most. But during that time, the message would mushroom and they would be heralds of repentance. And not only did those to whom they were sent have things to learn, just from the way Jesus sent them out, we have things to learn. The first thing we learn is that in spite of the fact that they could have covered twice the territory if sent out individually, Jesus sent them out in pairs. I think there's wisdom in that, even for today. You know, when going out as representatives of Christ, it's always better to go in pairs, two by two. Not only does that make our witness more effective, it helps safeguard 
against misunderstanding. We had an issue years ago where one elder went and confronted uh, an individual with some things that needed confronting. He should have taken another elder with him because it, it came back on him and uh, became a very negative situation. It's good, especially if you're trying to, to bring change into someone's life, that you take someone with you to communicate, to authenticate, and to be able to uh, have record of what actually took place in that confrontation. Well, next we see that Jesus sent them out with special powers and authority over unclean spirits, powers that authenticated the message. You know, throughout history, whenever God had a message to deliver, he confirmed it with signs and wonders. He gave special powers to Moses to prove he was God's spokesman and to give authority to the law he delivered. He gave the ability to perform signs and wonders to the prophets to authenticate their call and their message. And Jesus used signs and wonders to validate his ministry. Well, here we see him giving the same powers to his apostles to confirm the fact that they were indeed his spokesmen. And they, in turn, would later distribute special gifts and powers in the early church to confirm the coming of the new covenant. I think it's important for us to remember that miraculous signs and wonders were used to authenticate a message a new revelation from God, and were never the norm for day-to-day -day ministry in the kingdom of God. If they were normal, they would cease to be special and would signify nothing new. The apostles were sent out with special powers to confirm that their call to repentance was different. It had something no other call contained. We then note that Jesus sought to teach the apostles something of the providential care that God makes available to those who are doing his will. They were instructed to go just as they were. They weren't to take food, money, or extra clothing. The apostles were to trust God for their provisions. He would meet all the needs that they would have. Now, one word of caution here. This was a special time of testing and preparation for the apostles. Later, as Jesus came to the close of his ministry, he asked, when I sent you out with no purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They responded, nothing. He then said, but now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag. And let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. You know, I remind you of this because there are some who might read only the passage in Mark, which was specific instructions to the apostles on one preaching tour and assume they are to go out into the mission field with no preparation or support. Now, that's not to deny the fact that God will meet our needs and some, like Bruchko, a 19-year-old who felt the call of God bought a one-way ticket to South America and walked by himself into the jungle. You know, God can 
can meet our needs, and some can go without first securing support. But as a general rule, I believe God would have us avoid reckless presumption by just striking out on our own, assuming we're doing God's will before we allow him to confirm it through the church, through others, through brothers and sisters, through the leadership in the church, and by providing for the means for us to accomplish his mission. In this case, however, Jesus told the apostles what to take, where to go, and what to do. There was no need for them to wait for God to providentially direct them. They were simply to go immediately. Jesus then warned his disciples that some would reject his message. Some would refuse to repent. And some would reject his messengers. That's tough. But they couldn't let that defeat them. They were to shake the dust off their feet and go on. Now, the shaking off of dust wasn't a vindictive act, but it was intended to be a testimony to those who refused to accept them. You know, the Jews were taught to shake the dust off their feet when leaving pagan territory so they wouldn't defile their homeland with unclean Gentile dirt. So by doing the same thing, when leaving Jews who wouldn't welcome them and their message of repentance, the apostles were graphically warning them of the unclean condition if they remained unrepentant. All, however, would not reject them. Some would welcome them into their homes and heed their message. And those who accepted the message were blessed with forgiveness and with empirical evidence that their sins could be forgiven. Demons were cast out and people were healed. Now, regarding healing, we should take note that this is the only place in the Gospels where anointing with oil is mentioned. The only other place we find it in the New Testament is in the book of James, where elders are told to anoint the sick and pray for them. The purpose for the oil is open to debate. It may have had symbolic value. It may have signified the presence of the Spirit. Or it may have simply been medicinal. We really don't know. We really don't know. And we haven't been given explicit instructions on how to do this. I remember years ago, uh, we had someone in the hospital who, according to the book of James, asked the elders to come anoint them with oil. And we said, what do we do? How do we do it? <laughs> we didn't have specific instructions, but we figured, well, um, I guess we need olive oil. You know, I jokingly suggested we use three-in-one oil. Oh, never mind. <laughs> but we used vegetable oil, olive oil, and we went to them, and we prayed for them, and we put a little oil on them, not knowing why, but we did it in faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the reality is we don't know why 
It was done. And it's not something that is emphasized, like I said, over and over, just two mentions in the New Testament. And uh, we just don't know what it was. But the apostles, they, they may actually have gone out with a medicinal purpose to bring healing. They, they may have been sent not only as heralds of repentance, but also as medical missionaries sharing the compassion of Jesus as well as his message. All we know for sure is that those who accepted the message were blessed spiritually and physically. Good was accomplished in that mission. However, as Jesus had predicted, not everyone responded positively to what the apostles had to say. And Mark tells us specifically of one man who was terribly upset by the ministry of the apostles. Starting with verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, for his name, Jesus, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. The message of repentance and the testimony of the miraculous powers that confirmed this message reached all the way to the palace of King Herod. Well, actually, he was Tetrarch of Galilee, a puppet ruler under the authority of Rome, but he liked to think himself a king. Anyway, he was a man who was shaken by the message of the apostles and the miracles that were performed in the name of Jesus. And his immediate conclusion was that this Jesus, who preached repentance, was John the Baptist come back from the dead. Where did that come from? Well, his irrational conclusion was prompted by his guilt. John had been a herald of repentance, even to the king. And because of it, he had been beheaded. The guilt, both from refusing to repent and from executing God's spokesman, haunted Herod. Mark fills us in on the details in order to contrast Herod's response to a call for repentance with the response of those who received it and were blessed by it. Mark continues, For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and kept him safe. But when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. John's call to repentance had been very specific. He didn't just say, repent. He pointed to a specific sin that Herod needed to repent of. He said it was not lawful for him to have his brother's 
wife. Now, the marital entanglements of the whole family of Herod's is incredible. It started with Herod the Great, who married five different wives and had children by all of them. The children then began marrying each other and each other's children. In the case of this Herod, Herod Antipas, he married Herodias, the daughter of one half-brother who had been the wife of another half-brother, Philip, until being lured away by this Herod. Now, this was scandalous, even for a Herod. And John pointed an accusing finger at them both and said, repent. Herodias couldn't stand it and demanded John be imprisoned and executed. But Herod was afraid to execute John because he sensed him to be a righteous and holy man. In fact, Herod actually liked to listen to John. He was perplexed by him, but he wouldn't change. He enjoyed hearing what John had to say, but chose to ignore John's personal message to him. And the tense makes it clear that John repeatedly brought up Herod's sin. Herod was one of those who are willing to listen to a message from God but then failed to respond when called to act upon it, who let it go in one ear and out the other and never take the call to repentance personally. Herodias, on the other hand, was another story. She didn't want anyone talking about sin, especially her sin. In fact, she thought she could hide the truth by killing the messenger. So she plotted and schemed until she secured the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And a strategic day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head and he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Herodias didn't care who she used in her attempt to silence the truth. She was willing even to degrade her own daughter 
by having her perform a seductive Super Bowl halftime dance. <laughs> yeah. To entertain the king and his dinner guests. Well, apparently the king and his drinking buddies loved it. And in front of them all, he promised to give her anything she wanted, up to half his kingdom. Herodias had won. She had outmaneuvered Herod and forced him into a corner where he would have to kill John or lose face. He wasn't about to do that. So John was executed. The call to repentance, however, wasn't silenced with the death of John. It was now being proclaimed throughout the land, and Herod was tormented by it. And that's how it is with God's truth. Try to silence it by stomping it out, and it springs up all around you. That same message of repentance is being proclaimed today. Because it is still essential to the forgiveness of sin. So how are you going to respond? You know, few of us are like Herodias, who in wrath and vengeance try to silence God's message. Some are doing that today, but most of us are not like that. And then sadly, far too few are like the people who responded to the apostles' message of repentance and found forgiveness and healing from sin and its consequences. Most, I'm afraid, are like Herod. They might sense the holiness and righteousness of such a message, but they fail to take it personally and act upon it. If you are hearing a call to repentance today and the Spirit is convicting you of a need to repent, don't be a Herod. Acknowledge your sin, turn around, stop walking away from God and sing with us, Lord, I'm coming home to stand.